You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to In the Open with America and Teresa. Hey, everyone. And we have a special guest today, Josh. Hey, everybody. Our audio is not great today, but we're going to try our best to make it work. Um, Today's topic is how drinking or using drugs has ruined our relationships. Um, And I think just important full disclosure, this this podcast is not coming from a place where what we consider like I am the one who is drinking and that is how it's ruined my relationship. So Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and how that fits our topic? Yeah, sure. So hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Josh Chu. I'm a youth peer advocate or what's also known as a YPA. And um, one of the big things about being a YPA is being able to use our lived experiences to be able to provide the services that we do. And those lived experiences being like mental health related, substance abuse related. Um, and those are where I primarily come into play. Um, I've just kind of struggled throughout my whole life with anxiety and depression. I personally have never um, struggled with substance or substance abuse, but a lot of my close family, mom, dad, um, older sister, um, and a lot of my closest friends um, throughout high school and even now um, have struggled immensely when it's come to their own mental health and dealing with substance. So my background with this kind of thing is very wide, it's robust, um, but also it's very close. It's hit home in nearly every angle. Um, so when it comes to having conversations or even providing work about these kind of things, for me, um, it says a lot and it's able to kind of make me realize that I can take control. Yeah. And I mean, I'm very much of the mindset that we all struggle with some kind of addiction, but struggling specifically with drinking or using drugs is a special or different specific kind of experience. And I know none of us here can speak to what it feels like to know that you're engaging with a substance and then have ruined the relationships. But we are speaking from the family experience in this podcast, like coming at it from what it feels like to be on the other side in a relationship with someone who does drink or use drugs. So let's get started. When you think about this topic, about how drinking or using drugs has ruined your relationships with your family members or your friends, what comes to our minds? I think it's a very, um, it's a vicious cycle because depending on where you're introduced to it in your life, how it's kind of introduced to you, you kind of have a different perspective on it. I think for me, um, growing up, my parents made me very aware of, or at least my mom did, very aware of our history, our genetics, and kind of even some of the own issues that she was running into in her own struggles. And throughout my life, to be honest, that was one of my greatest fears, um, was becoming an addict myself or um, my mom relapsing and kind of falling back into that old cycle. So I had a very raw and early introduction to it. And that Um, gave me a perspective that I feel is a bit different than a lot of people who experience it much later in life. Um, Because for me, I don't want to say I was prepared, but I was definitely aware of the consequences of what could happen. Um, But I was never prepared on how to properly deal with that or react. I think unless you kind of get that outside consultation, that being prepared is one of the hardest things you can do um, because it attacks anytime, anywhere, and very randomly. So for me, at least... You know, the feelings of wondering if I have powerlessness, if I had any control, if I could do anything to stop them or help them. But also um, 
loneliness, you know, because especially when it's the people who are closest to you, you don't really have many others to talk to about that, especially if it's them or somebody you don't want to really have it be a known thing. I think especially when it came to like my my dad, per se, um, it was very hard telling some of the parents or friends of his that, you know, it's not him just being tired anymore from not working. It's something much more bigger, something much more greater. Um, so although they were trying to be helpful and just be like, Josh, your dad's working a lot. He must be tired all the time. Um, you want to say, yeah, because, you know, it's the truth. You know, he was a hardworking man and a work ethic like I've never seen before. But at the same time, uh, when it came to his ability to cope, he struggled immensely. And I think that definitely was a solid indicator and an eye-opener for maybe this world is not exactly um, it for what you think it's going to be like. Yeah. There's a lot there. I hope we can kind of dive down or break up some of those things. I definitely relate to being introduced to alcohol young. And it feels weird as like a family member to be talking about your family member and some of their aggressions. Even still as an adult, I feel the shame of I feel the guilt about like throwing your family member under the bus, even though yep. oh, yeah. <laughs> the family member that I'm talking about doesn't even care or know, you know, anymore or like is struggling with their own process. But like what that the heaviness of that guilt is something that I also hear is a theme that you're coming up with. And I don't know if that's because we've lived with it our whole lives, but mm-hmm. I really I feel that part. You know, what sticks out from what Josh shared really is this idea that early on your your mom had conversations with you. And I think in my experience and in just living in the world and having folks that have experienced this, that really hasn't been the case. It's been something that most often has been hidden or like the parents are trying really, really strongly to try to hide it instead of being very intentional about saying this is how we're struggling and this is what our family struggles with so that in some way they're preparing you but then i hear also how that also uh fueled some of that fear right in you that's just like is is that what's going to happen to me and you're like constantly thinking about that that's a lot to carry as a young person yeah you know going back to Teresa's point the we normalize a lot of it you know and for me that's that's what i did and at first, I don't, you know, I don't know my mom's exact mindset behind it. Um, I know for a while it was very difficult. So getting babysitters for those Sunday nights when she wanted to go to her meetings was, you know, I made it actually very difficult because I wanted to spend time with my mom. And, you know, she had worked all these hours and she'd been really grinding to get things right, you know, being a single mom of three. But then, you know, when you couldn't find a babysitter, where do we go? So I'd be going to meetings with her and I'd be sitting down, um, listening to people as they, um, start with the opening discussions and who's leading what today. And for me, um, like that introduction to life, um, you, you heard so many stories and a lot of my earliest mentors that sadly, um, I, I don't know how they're doing today. I can only ask. Um, they taught me a lot. You know, I remember people teaching me about my anger, um, and that introduction, although it is a lot to carry on, it, it made me very aware. Like when I started to want to experiment with alcohol and let's say seventh, sixth, seventh grade with certain friends, um, I had carried so much anxiety from it. The first person I ran to tell was my mom because I was terrified. Um, You know, I'd listened to her story. And um, although, you know, a lot of people think that telling your kids what's going on or some of the mistakes you made is very hard and it can scare them or even make them change their view of you. For me, um, the perspective I had on my mom never changed because she was the most strongest woman, strongest person um, I'd ever seen ever. She raised us on top of getting clean, keeping a roof over our head and doing things that she might not have wanted to be doing, but making those sacrifices that were necessary. But for me, um, 
it showed me that that's not the end all be all that regardless of the mistakes regardless of the struggles that we do have that there's always going to be a light at the end of the tunnel but it's only if we choose to see it and that was reminiscent of a lot of the meetings i'd go to um a lot of the people that would stay i don't want to say clean but the healthiest the longest were the ones that kept seeing that light would make a mistake would something would happen but that wasn't the end all be all for them and i think for a lot of us that come from these kind of families we get so nervous to perpetuate a cycle that we really had no part of but the perpetuation doesn't come from us trying to be something much bigger and greater a lot of the times it comes from us trying to avoid things and not understanding what the proper next step is to take so we do what we're taught we do what we remember and at least that's from you know from my observations and that's so amazing and healthy like i love that you have kind of like these two sides in your relationships like one where you know both parents struggled with an addiction but for your mom she took a different approach. I think a lot of parents fear that. They're like, oh, am I talking about my addiction too young? Like I'm introducing my child to it. I know I think about this when we talk to my kids who are only five about these things, you know, like we are just having open dialogue with our five-year-old about like, oh, papa, mama, we don't drink anymore (laughs) because we have problematic relationships with alcohol. And then the kid's like, well, what is alcohol? And you're like, ah, am I doing damage? You know, that's amazing. Can we talk about the other side? Let's talk about the relationships where we know that drugs have or addictions have ruined our relationships with others. And what what did that look like? So I guess the first one that comes to mind was I had a really close friend of mine um, in high school, star athlete. Um, this was the person that, you know, I'd go to read, say like one day um, I, the school power got shut down and I called my mom to let her dismiss me to go to this kid's house. When I got kicked out of my house, um, this would be the first person I'd call when I had gotten into fist fights or I had people threatening me. This was the first person I called. So um, when I say close friend, I really mean just my, my brother from another mother, you know? This kid was absolutely everything to me. And, um, you know, watching him start off in his struggles early, um, we kind of trauma bonded and we also enabled each other because we were able to use substance freely um, at his house. We were able to really just kind of do whatever we want with little to no supervision. And for me, I was aware of the limitations to what I could experiment, what I could not experiment with. But him and his dynamic with some family members kind of got him into a rough introduction on top of sports-related injuries and the availability of certain substances due to those. You know, it led him down a dark path, and I think um, it was right around our senior year of high school and things took a very, very dark turn. That summer prior, he had, and even earlier than that, he'd started to really get into heavy into opiates, opana, and eventually it had transitioned into using full-blown heroin. And in the beginning, it was very hard because there was no ability to communicate with him because he was not here entirely you know he was always very much heavily under the influence and even to the earlier moments you would have these situations where you'd be watching your friend do something that you know is wrong but you'd have no idea how to tell anybody because you yourself are already doing something so wrong with them and you know you don't want to get yourself in trouble you don't want to ruin a situation that's been very beneficial to you You know the selfishness that comes along with using substance definitely bled out on both ends there and um, it eventually, um, he went one direction and decided to go deeper and deeper and heavier and heavier. And I couldn't stay around that. I didn't want to have somebody threatening me, um, saying that, you know, I wasn't their friend, that I didn't love them because I didn't want to give them a ride to the city. But also, I didn't want to keep enabling somebody that really needed somebody that was going to hold them accountable rather than try to support them and nurture them. And that wasn't something I was able to do. Although I really wanted to try to be there the best that I could, um, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. Um, Although I had those experiences we discussed earlier, um, 
they didn't just fully prepare me to take on this um, situation all over again, especially at an age where I'm far more aware, far more understanding, but also a bit more capable of doing something. So now you add the ability to kind of have some sorts of agency, sense of power, but at the same time, the limitations that you have from being 16, 17 years old. So for me, it was, you know, watching somebody that you love turn into something that you hate and watching somebody kind of slowly kind of almost take their own life day in, day out because they, they're trying to fulfill something that you just can't seem to offer them. And to me, that was just, it was degrading. I couldn't stand to watch him. I couldn't stand to watch myself participate and be around this anymore. But also I felt, I felt so detrimental to him because I enabled it for so long. I felt part of the problem because I didn't know how to step up and make a change. And I didn't know how to step up and make a change that was just very well needed. That is um, very powerful, Josh, because in what you're sharing, I, I really like the, the thing that's sticking with me is that little selfishness that lives in all of us that you're just like, but this is, this is a good thing, right? Like I have a companion and I can hang out with this person and they are like, we mesh. And then it's like this monster that's just there and you can't avoid it. You know, um, I think that guilt also that you live with that ultimate, you have to make that decision. And what sticks in my brain is this thing that my mom said years ago, she was like talking about um, an individual in my life. And she said, you know, they're sinking and they're bringing you down with them and you have a choice. And I was like, damn, damn. Okay. You know, and I, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. Somebody had to really help me get to that space. I agree. It's like, um, that's like the weirdness, right? I feel like in maybe in some ways your mom, your mom worked as a protective factor for you to see the red flags too, you know, like so much of your story I relate to, except there's a part of it where I wonder if I didn't see things as early as you did, you know, like addiction was so normalized in my family that for a lot of people in my life, I actually made excuses for them. I And I would like be like, oh, that's okay. Maybe because I was like making a really bad benchmark. Like you have to be that bad to be bad. So like you're not there yet. Or some part of me wanted to cling on to the relationship and what I got from it, like which is what America is saying that like saying no or breaking up is still is still sad you know it's like like making that choice between what you know that relationship could be or what you get out of it even even though it's crap in so many parts it's so crappy there's still a lot of like things that you want in that relationship that you know when you're gonna go dark or just like close out a relationship you're like you have, you're saying no to the bad parts, but you're also letting go of all the good parts. Yeah, you know, um, I always like to say you got to see it for, um, for what it really is rather than for what you want it to be. And for me, that was huge because um, America, my mom would always tell me that he'll get you high far, far before you ever get uh, you get him clean. You know, that was the absolute truth. There was no desire for him to make those moves, especially with me there enabling it. And, you know, Going off of Teresa's point, um, you know, the normalization, but also the warning signs that we choose to ignore because it requires more of us. You know, it requires more than what we're just doing, more than us just being. Now it requires us to take responsibility. And when you take responsibility, you have to take some sort of accountability for kind of allowing um, for this to kind of happen in the first place. You know, it's, you can't just stare at a house fire 
and get mad for your house being on fire when you left a lit cigarette and a mattress, right? Like there's so much more to it. And I think for us, a lot of times I'm realizing that just because something's not right for you anymore, doesn't mean that, um, that it's just not good at all. You know, um, sometimes you do have to take a step back. Sometimes you do have to take a step away. And sometimes you need to remove yourself from a situation or somebody's life for them to realize how severe or how certain something really is. And especially in that situation, um, I remember the one argument we had, um, we had a large group of friends or probably like six of us. We hang out day in, day out. We you never see us without each other. Like we were just, it was like almost, um, stand by me, like how close we were, right? We were just chasing after train checks. And and I remember the one day um, I walked into his house and nobody was there anymore, you know? And I just remember screaming at him, like, where is everybody? Like, I'm, I'm the only one that's still here right now. Where's everybody else? And, and, you know, trying to show him and tell him that, you know, if we keep going in this direction, like, I'm going to have to leave. And eventually um, certain choices were made. And I had to make that decision. But um, it's it's not something that just comes out of nowhere. It's something that I think we willingly ignore up until it becomes a problem that bleeds into our life far beyond our control. And that there's nothing and you know, there's nothing intentionally going on there, but I think that's a part of the bonding that comes with using substance together is that you don't want to give up a good situation, especially if it's something that allows you to feel good, feel fulfilled, have a sense of belonging. You know, you start to live vicariously through other people and their experiences. So now in a sense you start to feel like you're living your own life and you know, how do you give that up, especially if you don't come from a family that provides that to you? How do you give that up? And, you know, not a lot of people are going to say, like, that's what they were looking for. Um, but for me, you know, looking back, that's something that I had to really acknowledge because I couldn't allow that selfishness to hurt another relationship or hurt somebody that I love again. Like, prioritizing me over the general health and well-being of somebody, like, that's not something I ever wanted to have to experience or feel again because now, um, instead of having a friend for life, I'm stuck with a bunch of what-ifs and I should-haves and I could-haves. And, you know, and that's something that I don't think anybody should ever have to live with. It, you know, Josh, it makes me think of um, what you're sharing, the fact that once you say something, right, you decide whether it's directly with the person or, or someone that can help, there is an accountability to it. And there comes a point, I think, at least in my experience, too, it's like once it was out and I said, look, this person needs help. And I, and I had a conversation with them directly as well. Um, I told them like, I can't be in your life, but, and, but remaining true to that, you know, so that I, I didn't end up doing more damage to myself and or damaging the relationship and, and enabling and all that, which is really hard on the other side of it too. And recognizing the impacts of, of you stepping away so that, hopefully that person will get better, but also realizing that the reality is that they may not. That period is hard, right? Because I don't know if you guys relate to this, but I found that if I, when I wasn't secure in myself, like because there's like a dual thing with addiction and like pain, when they're hurting themselves, I felt like I, it was easier for me to be like, okay, what's happening? When they started to hurt me, even then I found like, because I wasn't secure in myself, I wasn't even necessarily aware of how the relationship was also hurting me. But when I recovered, I can see with open eyes, like how much this is hurting me and how what we're doing here is like a weird codependent thing and like so unhealthy. 
setting that boundary was that was like finally the only time that I could finally set a boundary to protect myself and like actually get better. But it took forever. Yeah. You know, sometimes that's required, you know, taking a step back and, and gaining a new perspective. And I think one of the biggest components of awareness is recognizing, right? And you have to start recognizing certain components in order to become truly aware to them. And I think awareness isn't something that just coincidentally takes place. I think it's it's a choice that we kind of seem to start to make, you know, consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously. Um, it just there's something that's going on around us that makes us start recognizing these small patterns. And now recognition starts to turn into awareness. And now awareness can breed either the desire to make change or to stay or freeze. And I think for me, um, having to recognize that I, you know, it's like that old, it's like that one juice world line. I'm, I'm not scared to love. I'm just scared of love. I'm not realizing that a lot of times we have normalized not only the environments, but the love that we're given, the attention that we're given. And for me, um, I knew a lot of the love and a lot of the feelings I had were not necessarily right per se, um, but they felt right. And for me, even when somebody would show me true love or real love, I had some friends who were a far different kind of lifestyle, far different kind of perspective that showed me genuine real love. But for me, I was terrified of it. Um, I thought that they were trying to trick me. I thought that they were plotting on me. I thought that maybe I was just like a big joke that they'd bring around because everyone, every time I'd come around, I'm very, I try to make everyone laugh and, you know, I'm very, have a lot of humor and stuff. But at the same time, I never recognized that they weren't laughing at me. They were laughing with me. And the friends that I was using all the substance with, partying with, doing all these reckless things with, those guys weren't laughing with me. They were laughing at me. But for some reason, I had gotten so used to that negative love that not really having people care about you, always having to put in more than you're getting back, always having people manipulate you. Um, for me, I normally, I, I was like, that's, that's, you know, status quo. Um, so for me, being in that type of relationship, that type of environment, it felt more natural than me being in one that was healthy and actually probably beneficial to me. And I think it's it's a really scary wake-up call when you realize that um, a lot of times it wasn't even the people that were really that bad for you, but it was yourself. You know, it was because we were making those choices to put ourselves in situations. You know, we're entitled to our emotions and uh, responsible for our actions. And that's something that I really had to learn um, the hard way. I'm from a lot of these mistakes, you know, although something might feel right, might feel great, the actions that it puts forth. Um, and I think you put that into perspective into other things. But when it comes to friendships and family and love and you start attaching feelings into the mix, it, it gets messy real quick. But yeah, I think the way we normalize toxic relationships and love around us is just um, our, our own inability to truly process the trauma that we endured, but rather than us just compartmentalizing. It's just, that's all we've done. We've never processed it. We just compartmentalized it, stuffed it down into a box. And now someone's putting tape over it rather than opening up and dealing with it with us. And, you know, that's, that's what we kind of get from it. I have I have a question, Josh. Um, you know, and, and everything that you've shared so far, it's coming from this perspective of what you saw earlier on. But I wonder in some of the work that you've done and, and, and helped other young people too, is if you can speak a little bit to how different it is when you're the child in that relationship and you know it's like a parent someone that's supposed to be in this place of support for you and they're and they didn't do what your mom did they didn't have conversations you didn't see her working the steps and all that but instead it's just struggling and how do you manage that you know you look at the other side of my story a lot of the times that was uh, my dad um, he really didn't start trying to get clean until i think probably like last year-ish 
So it's still relatively fresh, relatively new, but, you know, in and out of detox more than five times, having to leave work, having to um, reschedule appointments, reschedule meetings, uh, miss opportunities. Um, I think with the other side of it, um, the feelings that come with it and kind of like the mentality is like, for me, I like, I, this is so hard to talk about because it's something I live with. I'm still living with to this day, but um, for the first time I had um, a real conversation with my dad. Like I was able to s- seek out advice from him and that felt so weird. Like it didn't feel natural. Like I was just like, what is, what is going on here? Um, but at the same time, like, you know, it's earned because now he's putting in that time. But prior to that, um, I couldn't go to him for advice because, you know, he'd be intoxicated. He wouldn't be understanding of the situation. He wasn't, you know, there enough to process what I was trying to tell him. Um, he would be struggling his own self. So, you know, he'd call me to tell me all his own problems, what he has going on, what he needs to be doing, what's going on with my eldest sister before she really, um, kind of, she passed away and stuff. He was always worrying about her. Um, and then you add into the mix, like when my, um, my eldest sister did pass, it was even more of a mess. Um, that was his firstborn, and there was a lot of kind of bumps in their relationship. But, you know, having to wonder if I have the chance to grieve, if I am going to be able to grieve around him, you're left to your own devices a lot of the time with them. Um, you have to learn how to handle certain situations on your own. Like, I couldn't go to my dad for advice when it came to girls. I couldn't really go to my dad for advice when it came to fighting bullies. Um teaching me how to throw a football. My mom did that. Teaching me how to shoot a basketball. My coach did that. Teaching me how to swing a bat. My coach did that. I remember my dad being there to teach me how to ride a bike. But at that point, um, I don't know if he was there or if he was just there. You know what I'm saying? Even a lot of your earliest memories are tainted and you can't really trust that nostalgic feeling that, you know, oh, well, he was better back then because you really don't know. Like I used to try to remember the times I heard my dad laugh, a genuine laugh. That wasn't like intoxicated or, or fueled by substance and like I probably five times in my entire life I'd ever even heard or really seen my dad without being under the influence of something and that was a very hard thought to deal with because all my friends were going hunting with their dads they were their dads were at their football games being more than just a parent watching and yelling at them they were coaching them they were giving them advice they were talking to their coaches and and you know you start to feel like maybe I'm the father in this relationship and maybe I'm the one that has to parent myself. Um, so I think there's there's so many just heavy and weighing feelings that kind of come with that. But at the same time, there's a lack of, for me at least, there created an inability to feel a lot of it. Because as soon as I started feeling it, as soon as I started thinking it, how can I not look up to my dad anymore? And I used to talk about this stuff in like fifth grade. Like, I want to look up to my dad, but I can't. Like, how do I do that? How do I look at him any differently? Um, that's my dad. And, you know, thankfully, he's making the decisions that he is now and he's trying his hardest to get his um, his crap together. But then, you know, another thing it breeds is a very solid understanding. Um, I was very aware of my dad's childhood. He was raised in the inner city of Buffalo on the east side during the race wars. He was a, a white kid in a predominantly black area. He did not come from a lot of money. He struggled immensely. His own father had his own struggles. And, you know, back then, it's not like people were talking or dealing with mental health or mental illness. So, um, when my father was couch hopping at the ripe age of 13, it was only until a short period of time where he was addicted to um, PCP and other, um, you know, hallucinogenic substances or things that allowed him to escape his own struggles. And anyone that knows anything about generational trauma, um, that that carried over, you know, his ability to understand the environment, his ability to navigate his environment, his ability to deal with and manage his emotions within the environment, you know, all that. I never really learned that from my dad. Never really got to understand how he dealt with his emotions because he never really had dealt with them. Yeah. As we close out, what what would you say to somebody who was in this space? 
as much as I'd love to be able to offer some empowering words, but the one thing I can and say, and at least about my situation, is that um, we're, we are only on this planet for such a limited time, and throughout our lives, we're going to be met with a lot of challenges, met with a lot of things that tell us to either not feel or to feel a certain way, and I think um, when it comes to our parents or the people that are very close to us, um, we need to look at it as a sense of maybe this isn't them. Um, maybe this isn't just fully them, and it's that awareness of it being a disease. So like my girlfriend likes to say, um, don't ever get your hopes up, but remain hopeful. Um, and I think it's a very powerful line to kind of stick with because, you know, you never lose that hope that maybe one day they'll be back because that's what holds on to the love, you know, and that's what's fueled by that love is that hope for it to be better one day. And that this isn't going to be like this for the rest of our lives. And I'm not saying that if you have that perspective or this is it, that there is no love, but it's just that love isn't. It's not the most powerful force that's guiding you right now. And I think for me, making sure that, you know, no matter what, no matter how angry I was at my dad, realizing that at any moment um, it could be his turn next. I don't want my last interaction with him to be um, like this. And, you know, and although he might not be his best for me, that doesn't mean I still can't be my best for him. Yeah, you've left me thinking, Josh. You know, I, I would say everything you've shared is is powerful in, in that it helps to frame a lot of the struggles that we may encounter, even though there's so many more, right? Because it's so complex. But like the baseline of that, I, I really like how you're saying, you know, you, you want to bring your best self to this so that you can help. There is hope. Even when we feel like, I love what your girlfriend's saying, you know, like don't get your hopes up. But dude, remain, remain focused on the fact that it could change. I love that. I actually really appreciate that you end on a message of hope. I know at different times in your lives, when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to see that because what you feel is anger or sadness. And if you're in that space, it's okay. You know, I think when you're on the receiving end, it's, again, it's so hard to sometimes just feel like guilty. And so you dismiss that, but that anger is what helps set boundaries and the boundaries is what helps set recovery. And there's no shame in any of these feelings, but I love that you end on a message of hope and change and positivity and forgiveness, (laughs) because I do ultimately think in the end that that's what makes like whole family recovery, the most meaningful thing that we hope for is that, right? Well, Josh, we we close out each session asking folks to keep fighting in the open. So you want to close folks out with that? Yeah, you know, everybody keep fighting, stay motivated, um, and keep fighting and stay out in the open.